This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. We're talking about something out there called the traditionalist statement of faith. For listeners who don't know, our church is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we hold the doctrines of grace, also known as Calvinism. So why are we talking about traditionalists? Well, we had traditionalist ideas roll in our circle recently, and so we wanted to look at it, and so that's what we did. Um, And so we started digging into this thing and learning a bit more about it. And so essentially, traditionalist view, it's, it's it's a pretty relatively new movement, but it's something that's within the SBC itself. So this isn't something that's broader than that. Um, and so it's a movement within the SBC, and it's something that has resulted over a growing concern of rising Calvinism, or what's known as neo-Calvinism, or young, reformed, and restless Calvinism. And so it is, it's in the SBC, and it's an explicitly anti-Calvinistic movement. Um, and so they're, they're gaining an increasingly louder voice, and it's coming out of the, this notion where they're claiming to be sort of the dominant perspective in the SBC. And so they want to try and keep the SBC like it was for the last few decades, at least that's what they're claiming. Um, But this is difficult to do, one, because the SBC is so broad. It's a broad tent. There's so many theological views, and they're like that on purpose. Uh, They try to keep broad on purpose so they could capture a lot of people. But um, yeah, it's not always always been Calvinism, uh, they claim. And so they wanted to bring it back to what they're calling the traditional view, which is less than genuine, which we'll talk about. But... um, so yeah, a statement was drafted by the uh, traditionalist people. They drafted a statement on affirmations and denials. And so with that, there was a, a preamble that they made. And it's my job to read that in a fascinating way. So make it interesting. Yeah. Um, so it says, every generation of Southern Baptist has the duty to articulate the truths of its faith with particular attention to the issues that are impacting contemporary mission and ministry. The precipitating issue for this statement is the rise of a movement called New Calvinism among Southern Baptists. This movement is committed to advancing in the churches an exclusively Calvinistic understanding of salvation, characterized by an aggressive insistence on the doctrines of grace, or TULIP, and to the goal of making Calvinism the central Southern Baptist position on God's plan of salvation. While Calvinists have been present—oh, that's such a bad line— but they say, while Calvinism has been in, present in Southern Baptist life from its earliest days and have made very important contributions to our history and theology, the majority of Southern Baptists do not embrace Calvinism. So that's their preamble. So they're the ones shooting across the bow, if you will. And they are trying to make the argument that the original theology of the Southern Baptist Convention was decidedly, well, Non-Calvinistic, but yeah. yeah. Um, The problem with it is that the traditionalists can't deny the reality of the Calvinist. Um, And so they even add this. We propose that what most Southern Baptists believe about salvation can rightly be called traditional Southern Baptist soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, which should be understood in distinction to Calvinist soteriology. Traditional Southern Baptist soteriology is articulated in a general way in the Baptist faith and message in Article 4, 
While some earlier Baptist confessions were shaped by Calvinism, the clear trajectory of the Baptist faith and message since 1925 is away from Calvinism. So that's what they're arguing for. Um, the problem is it's just not yeah. accurate. Yeah, so they, they say that the clear trajectory of the BFN on the Baptist faith and message, which is the official sort of statement from, from the SBC on you know, what they hold to doctrinally, um, is moving away from Calvinism, which is a silly statement. Well, like I give them fly rents tell whether it's moving away from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is not, well, and it's not accurate. It's not an accurate statement, but yeah. we wouldn't care anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, look, it doesn't, I don't care where we're moving toward. Yeah. Let's say, what does the scripture say about something? Yeah. And let's go back to it if we have to go back. Yeah. But, so, but the point the point of this statement is that yeah. there's this growing concern within the SBC over these you know the, these new Calvinists or neo neo Calvinists, and so they want to try and rescue something or maintain something that they feel has has been there, which is just false. And the reason for that is because I mean, just to give a brief history of the SBC, the convention, and it's not a denomination; it's actually a convention. It started in 1845, and so for essentially 80 years, it was decidedly Calvinistic. And there's no way around that. No. I mean, there's the founders just too were Calvin, much. Yeah. yeah. In fact, there's an entire movement that's been going on for decades called the Founders mm-hmm. Movement because it, it's been the effort to get back to its roots. Yeah. Um, which was Calvinistic. Yeah. And so we, we would say even the term traditional or traditionalism or traditionalist is a, it's a less than genuine name because yeah. it gives the idea that non Calvinistic theology was the original SBC position, which is just not true. Yeah, yeah. W- what they're really arguing for is let's go back to the good old days of the last few decades yeah. where everyone believed just about whatever was right within their own eyes and theology was kept vague yeah. and let's not worry about it. And um, yeah, we're not about that. We're going to call that fably. Yeah, it's fably. We well, it's a, l- a little bit fably, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, so the convention began in 1845, but then there's this thing called the Abstract of Principles. Which is a? Have you read ever read through that? Yes, that's, that's where I get document. these statements or these. Yeah, um, and so that came out in 1858, and this was explicitly and overtly Calvinistic in terms of their soteriology or their understanding of of salvation. And the reason for that is because it's clear by the framers there or the the writers there that regeneration precedes faith. So so regenerate heart comes before a person can express faith, whereas you know a, a traditionalist viewer or your, your classical Arminian view would be faith precedes or comes before a regenerate heart. You have to exercise that faith first. However, just to quickly clarify, because some people listening who may be traditionalists are already going to stumble and say, see, you don't know what you're talking about. Traditionalism is not true Arminianism, but they do agree with Arminianism on that point of which Correct. precedes yes. which. Good. Thanks. Yeah. So, so, the abstract of principles, it was clear at that point that regeneration preceded faith. Then you get the first Baptist faith, the message, which then came out in 1925. And this was based on um, an 1833 New Hampshire confession. And, and this is worth noting because early Baptists were actually creedalists. Mm-hmm. And later, the Southern Baptists broke away from confessionalism and creedalism and Many people today think that was a good move. It wasn't a good move because they broke away from sound doctrinal statements and they began to become more and more broad. And on all that made for a convention that got really big, but not necessarily better. 
Yeah. So and it, so we're dealing with all that garbage now. Yeah. In like 20 seconds, what's creedalism? Holding to a specific creed. Yeah. Just the old, the old creeds. Yeah, yeah. Like the Nicene Creed. Did. Apostolic Creed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it was the, the 1920s. you were trying to trick no, me. No, why did you say clarifications? No, you know, I appreciate that. I, mean, I don't know what the heck we're talking about at this point. You guys are going so fast. Yeah, so, so the, the 1925, which was the first Baptist faith and message, um, that was based on the 1833 New Hampshire Confession. But that one, that one stated in so many words that faith preceded regeneration. So it did, in some sense, you know, give the idea, I mean, it moved away and became more non-Calvinistic in that sense. Um, and it was, we don't have the time, nor do the listeners even remotely want to hear us get into it, but there's a history that's going on in revivalism in America mm -hmm. where a lot of this stuff is starting to come from of, uh, you know, the advent of the altar call and all of that junk and yeah. what gets you saved. And that's where you start getting people saying, you, you know, you got to get born again. And the way you do it is by trusting in Jesus. And that's where that faith. Right. And once you exercise faith. Yeah. And there's probably born. some political things going on here too. There, there, <laughs> yeah. It's a mess. Just knowing the SBC. Yeah. So then, so then in 1963, um, they came out with the new one or an updated revised version. And it, the confession went back to um, a, stating essentially that regeneration precedes faith. So now it's back to a more Calvinistic perspective on, on salvation or soteriology. And then again, in 2000, which is the, the current one we have, the, the BFNM 2000, um, it also, again, reaffirmed that regeneration precedes faith. And so if you, if you put all that together, basically from 1925 to 1963, it was less Calvinistic. It was more of a non-Calvinistic soteriological statement. But before that, before 1925, and then after 63, it was, you know, regeneration precedes faith. So that's a Calvinistic um, position. So we, we say all that though, because the name traditionalist in that sense is misleading. It is not the traditional position of the SBC. And so I think it's, it's disingenuous and, and unhelpful at best. Yeah. And, Quick little story on that, because I consider myself fairly well-taught and well-read. And when I first heard a, a person tell me, you know, they're, they hold to the traditionalist position, I'm like, I have no idea what that means. I, and I'm thinking, where have I been hiding that I can't re recall something like that? And it wasn't, it was you that explained to me, oh, no, actually, that's this movement in our convention that I didn't even know about. And it turns out I did know about it. I just didn't know the term. Sure. And and it is. It's that it, it's actually a political. They're going to make it a theological, but there's a, a lot of politics. There's power that's involved in influence, and it's just a big pushback against the resurgence of conservative yeah. theology because it's not just soteriology. It's not just Calvinism. It really comes down to um, the rise of moderate. Theology, which we would call liberal in in the Southern Baptist Convention, and then the pushback that started, and led by men like Al Mohler, but he's Calvinistic, and now there's pushback against the pushback. So all of that's what's going on, and that's where this traditionalist comes in, and so they're trying to coin a phrase yeah. that makes it that gives the appearance that they're just simply saying, "Look, we're just trying to go back to our roots." As he says, disingenuous, which means not true. Yeah. yeah. So, in in light of all that, though, we would say the majority. So, whatever the majority is, whether it's the SBC or outside the SBC, but the majority is never the basis for right theology. So, regardless of what a statement 
or a confession would say. We would not say the majority, you know, voter agreement on what a confession should say determines what's true or truth. And so, you know, we don't put truth to a vote. We don't, you know, create a a, a statement of faith and say, this is what truth is because this is what the statement is saying and look back to the statements. And so um, we would say what makes this a bad document is its desire to preserve the current state of, of SBC theologically rather than examining it biblically. And, and it gives the appearance that this is a careful theological document, and I don't think it is at all. I'm sure that maybe the people writing it thought it was, but, I mean, when we went through it, we, we actually had giggle fits at some of the, and we're going to talk about those here in, in just a second, of, of some of the proof texts that they were using. It's like, yeah. oh my goodness, I mean, we can just randomly pull any verse out now and just say, see, that proves our point, because we're not going to explain anything. Yeah. It's bad. It's, oh, it's, on, the, on the traditionalist side, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. It, but it's, it gives this sense to a person who doesn't like, doesn't want to think through the theology, um, it gives them something to say, yeah, this is my camp, and I believe, and see, we got a really fancy document here. But yeah. it's not a fancy document. It's a bad document. Yeah. And we're, that's what we're going to try to show is, okay, we're going to go and attack it at its roots. Here, here's what they're arguing for, and here's why you should never appeal to this because right. so much of it's bad. Yeah, or, or appeal to, you know, the point, though, we're trying to make is the, or appeal to this, even the Baptist faith and message. Yeah. Yeah. Let's so, appeal to the scripture. Yeah, exactly. Which so, is a very Baptist thing to do. Yes. But they don't. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, I think. Well, the challenge with the, with the Baptist faith and message is it's so broad, and it's that way on purpose because it's a big tent, you know, convention. And so you, you can't really look at it and say this is going to determine, you know, absolutely what the right understanding of salvation is or should be. You know, they try to make it broad on purpose, and I don't know. Yeah, so they're going to try to use the issue of soteriology, which, again, is a doctrine of salvation, and they see that that really is the key issue, right? That we, we need to understand in what way does man become saved mm-hmm. in a right relationship. And, and I would agree with them. That is the issue, uh, but that's also where the rub is because that's not a, a, a secondary point or a non-essential point. That, that's the essence of the Christian faith is, you know, what makes you a Christian and how do you become a Christian? And so we, wanna, we want on this podcast to then explore what does the Bible say about how one becomes mm-hmm. a Christian in light of what they're saying it, it says. Yeah. So we're going to literally walk through their affirmations and denials and talk about it, about what we, yeah, maybe what we agree with, maybe what we uh, quibble with, and then certainly what we disagree with. Which is the bulk of it. Mm, Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to give the uh, first. So I'll read it. Yeah. And then you can. Yeah. So article one, the gospel, they state this, they say, we affirm that the gospel is the good news that God has made a way of salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for any person. This is in keeping with God's desire for every person to be saved. We deny that only a select few are capable of responding to the gospel while the rest are predestined to an eternity in hell. So what would you say we agree with? Okay, first of all, the whole, the whole thing, the way it's written, is just an obnoxious in my mind, but we won't go there. Because that. that 
it appears that what they're talking about is the gospel, but they never define the gospel in any real sense. I mean, they give it in the most basic. And then they immediately go off into what really bugs them, and that is the idea of the electing power and right of God for some unto salvation. And they really don't like anyone who would believe in a double predestination. So that's what they're really struggling with. But Mm -hmm. we, we would agree. We would agree that salvation does come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then no Christian, <laughs> it's like, duh. No one debates that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not even mm. open for it. Yeah. So, so so, if they just left it at that. Yeah, we'd be like, that's the gospel. amen, brother. Yes. In fact, we could actually go and have a cigar with them or. I don't smoke cigars. <laughs> we could not invite them to a drink because they don't drink, but it doesn't matter. Anyhow. Do they smoke cigars? Yeah. Well, a good Southern Baptist does. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, right. you you would never let wine pass your lips. But, banned alcohol. But, man, uh-huh. you can crank out the Marlboros sure. because back in the old days, they were all tobacco farmers. Right. That's how they made their money. Yeah. So, it all comes back to the money. It always well, follow right. the money, man. That's right. Follow the money. So, But th- there's a lot of it um, that we're going to disagree with. I mean, according to this, the gospel is not the work of God, but merely a way of salvation. Right there, we could just wax right on. We won't, but it 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 it's already heading in a specific direction because obviously they're trying to move yeah. in a direction. But but it's not what is the gospel. The gospel is this finished in the one man called it the great indicatives. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what God has done. Nope, it's it's here's a way. Yeah, they're making it how how it applies. So the good you, news yeah. is not what God has done on our behalf, but. The good news is that he's opened a way. Mm-hmm. And right behind that is a theology. The theology is, are you willing to enter that way? Right. Um, but that's not a quibble. It really sets the whole tone of the doctrine. Uh, document, uh, the document. <laughs> the gospel is expressed in its most basic sense in 1 Corinthians one fifteen. So uh, it says in 15, <laughs> 1 through something. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he goes on and describes yeah. all of those appearances. That's the gospel. In its most basic sense, It's and, and the key point in there is it's all in accordance to the scripture. No genuine Christian would reject that. Every believer affirms, no matter what their theological position, that's the beauty of the gospel, is that if, if you're really a believer of the gospel, we're all going to settle there and we're going to rejoice in that. We may debate other aspects, but we always will settle there. Um, the key phrase for them, though, is that opening of a way, and that's where the debate enters in, and it's worth noting. What exactly did Jesus do on the cross? That's the real question. What did he actually accomplish? So, and I grew up in various aspects of the Christian faith. I mean, I I was a Plymouth Brethren for many years. I was part of the Nazarene Church, which is a Wesleyan-Arminian tradition. And it was not for a long time until somebody really pressed me to begin to examine the scripture. Did God, God actually do something? Did Christ do something on the cross? Was something actually accomplished? And so I would ask a traditionalist, did 
Christ actually take away sin or only potentially? You know, did he actually save someone or only potentially? Do you see the, the difference yeah. there? Yeah. It's, it was something done or did it yeah. open the way for it to be done if something else occurs? Yeah. And what they would say is, if you believe, then yeah, that it, happens. Or like, Mar- or like Murray would say, it was accomplished and applied, yeah. right? So they might say, oh, yeah, of course it was. Of course he took care of sin, you know, but, but where we would say is, but was it applied? Did it actually do something or was it just yeah. hypothetical, theoretical based on some kind of vague spot response? But we, we can debate this theologically, but that's not where the debate needs to be. It has to be in the scripture. Um, and as a Calvinist myself, the Bible, I have no problem in saying this, is very clear that Jesus actually bore away our sin it says so, um, and it, that doesn't connect that with a requirement first on our end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he actually redeemed his people. He actually saved them. But for the traditionalists, and this is where you would want to push them, that's not true. They can only say that he opened the way for people mm-hmm. to be saved. But here's the, the key. If you're what? If you're willing. Right. So, so that's, and that's the distinction between regeneration preceding faith or faith preceding regeneration. So if he actually accomplished something on the cross, that include, that includes your faith, which is a gift. Um, but they would say, so he's, he's created a way, but your, your faith first has to come and then regeneration follows. But we would, we we would believe the scriptures would (laughs) teaches the opposite. We would say that's fably. Fably. uh, fably, Yeah. So then they give their, like in any theological document like that, there's proof texts, and there's nothing wrong with proof texts if they're good ones. And so they give a, a whole list of texts that they think prove this. And one of them was Psalm 2, which had me scratching my head. I'm like, what does that have to do with any of the things that they just said in that affirmation? They had nothing. Um, it's, it's a messianic psalm, but it has nothing to do with the gospel. Um, then they bring up Ezekiel 18, where... God uh, desires to not punish the wicked or the evil. And it's like, okay, we, we wouldn't disagree with that. He says that. But what does that have to do with their affirmation that the gospel opens a way of salvation? Um, they bring up Luke 19, verse 10. But it, all it does is it states the purpose of Christ's work, but it makes, makes no statement supporting the traditionalist com- concept of there's a way that's been opened. Um. In, in just those three passages, all they really do is give the appearance that they have scriptural support, but none of it pushes their view. Do you have the Luke 24 passage? Uh, Can no. you? Sure. Because th- that one is another one, and it was humorous when I looked at it, because it actually is a good text against their view. 24 what? 24, 45 and following. Then he opened their, so Christ... Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that's probably enough. My my only understanding that they're looking at is that, well, see, there's a call to repent. And therefore you must be able to freely repent. It doesn't say that, mm. but that, that's the best I could come up with that they were actually saying. 
But what's fascinating is what did Jesus have to do to the uh, disciples there in verse, I think it's 45. It opened their minds. Yeah. yeah. It's like until Christ did something, they couldn't do anything. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one of those great passages of of the, the, the free will not being as free as we like to think it is. Um, then he gives the disciples that mandate to proclaim the gospel, which is his death or resurrection, and a call for repentance. But again, there's no discussion of an opening of a way now. It's Christ having to do a supernatural work to open their minds. Then he gives them a mandate to go and preach this. Um, the only way you can go further than that is to go beyond what the text says and then say, well, clearly there's these implications. But the implication of a text is not the text, if that makes sense. Then he does also the John 1 what verses one through eighteen, but I think all they really are looking at are verses twelve through um, thirteen. I mean, because it, it's talking about in the beginning was the word, right? Word was with God, uh, and then we are talking about John the Baptist. And so I know they're they're not there, but in verse twelve it says, "But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood." not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And it's a common passage that people appeal to where it says, but see, it's to those who received him. Those are the ones that he gave the right. The problem is the grammar of this passage. And that's the struggle is we're not good with grammar, right? But if you have your good grammar, the passage is actually the exact opposite of what they want to prove. They want to prove that people receive Jesus and now they become born again. But the reality is, the grammar of the text has verse 13 preceding verse 12. And it's because they were born of the will of God that they receive him. And that's, that's a subtle distinction that gets missed because we're, we're kind of looking at, at it at the level of English. And I'm not going to get yeah. into the Greek of it. But, um, and, and, but there's more than sufficient number of texts out there. So again, another passage given. What's another one that they use? Um, well, Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things were from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. By the way, who's he talking to there? Believers? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It it, it gets missed a lot. Uh, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so... They choose to take that one, um, and and the reason that they're using it is there's this word of reconciliation that we are now ambassadors, and we're calling the people to go out and to be reconciled to God. Okay, so again, behind that is this implication that somehow it's up to us to let God reconcile us, but we got to be willing to do it. And so that's it's not explicitly stated. And that's what I guess I'm trying to show that in in the text that they're using, none of them actually say what they want it to say. You have to read beyond the text to say it. But what makes it really fascinating is this passage is not normally used to prove free will. 
It's usually the one that universalists use to prove that everyone will be saved because it says that he has, um, that God was in Christ in verse 19, reconciling the world, the world to himself. And so the universalist looks at that and says, look, do you believe the word of God? Doesn't it say that he's reconciled the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him? And then you're forced to say yes, and they say, see, so everyone will be saved. That actually has a stronger argument, even though it's a false one. You actually have a stronger argument for that argument than in some way that this is a way to prove that God has made a way of salvation, and now we're just simply there to appeal to the people to be willing to enter that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So then... They talk the same. They do the same thing in Galatians four. We won't get into that one just for time's sake. But again, nothing in Galatians four is a, uh, about the way one is redeemed. But that's what they're trying to argue it is. And then they give the famous one in First Timothy two. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a common proof text for people because. God desires everyone to be saved. Um, however, it's worth noting that it's ex- it's it is expressing God's desire, but again, it never again states how one is saved. Only that there is this one mediator that is Jesus Christ, um, which is in verse five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Je- uh, Christ Jesus. So again, what they're going to do, and the only way they can do it is taking a passage that says that God desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of truth, and they make build into that the assumption. Therefore, it's up to us to let him save us, and it doesn't say that again. Never are is any of these passages showing us the way, the means by which God is saving us. So, what about the Hebrews passage? Yeah, so Hebrews one three through four says, and he, uh, meaning Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So, I mean, the text says he made purification for sins. Yeah. uh, Which we agree with. And because that's what the Bible says, but, but nothing's mentioned of how, that is or what you need to do in light of right. that. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the key is if I were to be using that passage, I'd be showing, see, this is a statement of what actually occurred on the cross. He yeah. actually made purification because that's what it says. Yeah. It doesn't say he made purification of sin if you're willing to let him or if you later trust him or anything else, but that he literally bore, and, and this would require additional scripture, but that he literally bore the sins of the elect upon himself in, and, and he literally paid and made purification for them all. Now, whether that had been applied to me yet doesn't matter. The reason that I am ultimately saved is not because I believed, but because in time past, Christ literally paid for all my sin and he made purification. So it's not a passage talking about a way or a means by which you're going to get yourself saved but it's simply a statement of what Christ has done. So again, it, it doesn't achieve their, their goal. And then they get into Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then I guess this is what they're trying to do with it. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. The best I can figure in this passage, because it's not a salvific passage, is it's like, what are you talking about? And the only thing I can guess is that they would apply verse 16 and say, the sinner, unsaved sinner, should be drawing near to God to receive salvific grace in their time of need. That's not the passage. The us in verse 16 is believers. And he's talking about that ongoing need for abiding Fair. grace in our lives. And and this is what they do over and over and over again in this passage. And then he's got one more thing he, um, that, that's always used. The Second Peter 3, uh, 9. Let me bring that up. Um, it's, it's the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so... If you're ever having a discussion on the nature of salvation, this one will always come up. But a couple of points have to be made. Um, th- there's a pronoun there that you don't, ne- in English, we don't think of it as a pronoun, but it's a pronoun. Um, so, and, and it's a word, any, that he is not willing that any, and maybe it might be more clear people thought of it like that anyone should perish, but it's simply a pronoun. And when you have a pronoun, the first thing you have to do is what? You have to find what? Are you asking me? Yeah. You have to find the antecedent. Yeah, it's a fancy word. But we have to, you have to go backwards and you have to find out, okay, to, to whom is this pronoun applied? And what's fascinating is if you go backward, the nearest antecedent is the word beloved. That's the first time you finally have an explanation of who this pronoun any is, is being applied to in verse one. And it's actually talking about Christians. And so grammatically, all you need to look at that is that God is not willing that any of his beloved should perish, but they should all be saved. And that's all it's really saying is that God is still saving his beloved. God is still saving the ones for whom Christ redeemed and, and made purification for sin. And until he's done saving them all, the end will not come. The second thing that you have to do with this passage is to try to make this say that God is delaying the end because he wants everyone to come and be saved. Just isn't supported in the Bible. Um, I mean, you and I were talking earlier today about think of the countless who perished in the flood who were young or the one we talked about was Think about all those people in Egypt who had a firstborn son that was killed. You know, one day, they don't know what's going on. They're just poor Egyptians living out their life. They have no idea what's going on in the Pharaoh's house. They have no idea about this guy named Moses or anything else. All they know is one day in their little hamlet, they wake up and everyone's firstborn son's dead. Well, obviously, God was not delaying for them. I mean, every one of those firstborn sons was brought into eternity without Christ without any hope of salvation, then they were dead. Or you think about the infants of up to two years of age in Matthew. Why didn't he let them live a full life? Um, it, it just, once you start thinking about it, you start scratching at it, it doesn't fit. And so 
to try to say, well, God is just delaying everything because he wants everyone to be saved, but it's really up to you. The facts of life just won't work because people's baby die. Their, their son is killed um, on his way to church, whatever it might be. So here's the point that I'm, I'm making in this, that this is a foundation of the whole document, but they can't even come up with a good verse, one good verse that just simply gives gospel truths. Instead, what they're really trying to do is set a stage that merely supports the idea that a way of salvation came through Jesus, even though they can't support it. And so these are their, I would say, if these are their best passages, then they're, they should be embarrassed because it's really bad, um, really, really bad what they're trying to do. They're trying to hold to an idea of what Christ did, what was the atonement um, that later on cannot be sustained by their own statement of the gospel. So that's, that's kind of our first shot across the bow, but, but it's a strong one of here's their opening statement, here's their opening scriptures, here's their best passages that defend that what happened was that Christ opened a way of salvation and they can't, they can't even come up with a good verse that actually supports that. So right away, I'm already suspecting to use your word fably. This is just bad stuff. Mm-hmm.